Good morning. How many of you just greeted somebody you've never greeted before? How many of you? Are, are you lying? Okay, I'll trust you for that. Make sure every week when we do that, find somebody you don't even know and try to find them the next week, all right? We, we want to get better at uh, welcoming and greeting people. Let's pause to pray before we go on. Let's quiet our hearts in preparation to receive God's message from his word. It is good to be loud together, Father, and it's good to be quiet together. So still us within. Help us to be good hearers of the word so that we may be good doers of it as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. My name is Steve White. Welcome this morning. The word clueless first appeared in the English language in 1743 when it was used to describe a crime scene where seemingly no clues were left behind to lead to the solving of the crime. It became popular in youth culture in the 1980s, most of you remember, when suddenly people were clueless. They were thick-headed. They didn't have a clue. Now, in case you don't understand that, let's do a knock-knock joke. Knock, knock. Hike. I didn't know you liked Japanese poetry. See, many of you are clueless about what that joke just was. That's an example of cluelessness, okay? Or if you don't get that, maybe consider a couple of these signs. Here's this one. Uh, Cake shop, secret center lemon muffins. And tells you what's in the, what the the secret is. Lemon flavor sponge with uh, oozing lemon curd middle. A clueless label maker for the bakery, I would call that. Then this one. Wheelchair, disabled people, concrete median across the crosswalk. I'd say that's a clueless uh, town worker that did that. Next one. Learn to read. Who can read that if they're illiterate, right? All right. Clue. If, if God were assigning a subtitle to the prophet Malachi, I think he would call it clueless. Open your Bibles to the last book of the Old Testament. Turn your devices to that. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. We're also going to be in 1 John chapter 3 this morning. These people to whom Malachi is speaking, announcing God's word, have to be the most unself-aware people in the pages of Scripture. The year is about 450 B.C., Um, Malachi, along with some other prophets, are the last inspired of the prophets until God will seemingly not speak for over 400 years. Now, maybe he did, uh, maybe he didn't, but at least he didn't see fit to preserve what he had to say for our good today. When God evaluates his people in Malachi's day, he is gravely disappointed with the evaluation he has to give them. Now, the prophecy begins with two words, a prophecy, or it might say in your version, an oracle. But the Hebrew word there means burden. He's saying a burden. He's saying, when I look at you, I am burdened by what I see. I would hate to think that when God looks on my life and your life, the life of our church, that we're the same way to him. It begs the question, when God sees us, does he see us as a burden? Or a blessing. Because the first word he has to say is, I have loved you. 
And their response is, what? Have you loved us? They seem clueless about the degree to which God has loved his people, this Jewish nation. And my guess is they have so allowed the circumstances of their life to cloud them, they have lost sight of all that God has done through this nation all through the centuries. He chose these people to be his chosen people, and despite their continual, repeated rebellion and disobedience, idol worship, they, they, he continues to, stretch, to reach toward them to bring him and to love them to himself. And he, these people could have recounted that. And so here, here, good things have happened recently in recent times. They could look at their recent history, and I'm talking about you know, the, the last, uh, last few decades or so when God promised to bring them back because they were under Babylonian captivity. The nation had fallen. They were taken away in 586 B.C. And God said, I'm going to bring you back. And he did little by little, first by a man named Zerubbabel, then by a man named Nehemiah, uh, Ezra, and then a man named Nehemiah. And so they're back in Jerusalem now after the, after the exile, after the Babylonian captivity. Their temple has re- been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt. Their homes have been rebuilt. But they're still, they're still troubled about what's going. The monarchy has not been reestablished as they, as they expected. There's no sign of the priest king that Zechariah had promised. Well, he's not coming until for 400 years. That's Jesus. The priest king to come is Jesus. That's not going to happen for over four centuries yet. They had a different idea of what this priest king or who this priest king is. They were looking for a political and military uh, king. And that wasn't the kind of kingdom that Jesus, God was ultimately building. They, they, they're, they're, they were still not a, a great and victorious people. The Gentiles were not worshiping in the temple, like the prophecy said. Well, that's not going to happen until the preaching of the gospel, when the gospel is made known to all the nations of the world. Prosperity hadn't returned. Enemies had not been crushed. They had forgotten God's promise, or at least were questioning it. All they had to do is sit at the dinner table and talk about God's working and his faithfulness among his people, despite how, what kind of people they had been. It's just like us. We have all these wonderful things God has blessed us with, especially the cross of Christ. And he's given us the very best and all the additional things. And we let relationship issues, we let money problems, we let job problems, child-rearing problems, other relationship problems so cloud us in our circumstances. And God doesn't answer our prayers fast enough, quickly enough. And then we start questioning, loved us? How have you loved us? Shame on us for allowing circumstances to blind us to the blessings of God. Have you recounted the blessings of God lately? When you take your eyes off the cross of Jesus, you you are doomed to whine. How have you loved us? We are so prone to cluelessness. So this is what how the cluelessness continues on, verse six. A son honors his father, a slave his master. If I am a father, where is his honor due me? Where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice fame, uh, lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? 
Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. God raises the issue of honor. A son honors his father. A servant honors his master. That word honor in the Hebrew language means to be heavy, to be heavy. What God is saying is, look, these, these relationships, a father to a son and a master to a servant, acts as a heavyweight in that person's life. He says, now where am I? Of all people, I should be the one you're honoring. I should be the one who is the most important heavyweight in your life. But that wasn't happening. See, honoring your father and mother according to the Ten Commandments you know, is not just obeying and doing what they do. It means you look at your parents as a key heavyweight in your life for the shaping of your life and character and integrity and uprightness. So God says, instead of this, you are treating me with Tim. How? Now, this, these, this three-week series we're calling I Dare You, and it's rooted in Malachi chapter 3 that we'll look at more deeply next Sunday uh, because that's where God says, look, I, test me. He says, you, you're robbing me. He said, what? How are we robbing you? He said, because, by not bringing me the tithes and offerings. Test me and see if I will not throw open the windows of heaven if you will take me at my word. That's what he's saying. So, get, so through all, that's why we've called this, I dare you. God, is, God challenges us. And we can, we can learn to trust him and his word or decide he's not trustworthy. That's basically what we're doing when he asks us to lay down our lives for him and everything associated with our very lives. That's what he's saying. So I was so blessed last week by Luke's message on I dare you to trust. I mean, I, there are areas of my life that I am not trusting him completely. And so I needed that message last week to just help me trust and rest in the Lord and what he has. I need this message too. Because as much as I've been able to grow in the Lord right with you, there are areas of my life that I'm still holding too tightly to. I think God is saying two things here. I dare you to love me by giving your best. That's the first thing he's saying. I, I dare you to love me by giving your best. Old Testament law, of course, required the people of God to sacrifice the first of their flocks and herds, their flocks and herds to, 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 to bring that, that where there wasn't assurance of what was to follow. If you, to, if you bring your first, how do you know there's going to be enough? Well, you're showing you trust the Lord. And so they were tempted, and in fact, the priests were leading the way by bringing blemished animals, by being the animals that wouldn't be, bring as much of a profit in the marketplace, or animals that wouldn't be as good for breeding purposes. God says, look, I don't want those. You wouldn't even give that to your local government. Now, here we are having Christ's ultimate sacrifice to claim and to enjoy in our own life, how he's impacted us. It's only reasonable that we would, we would learn to give our very best. Paul said in Romans 12, uh, to offer our bodies as, in view of his mercy, to give our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. It's our, it's our reasonable act of worship before him. How could we look at the cross, the suffering Savior, and not be willing to give our very best as we continue to grow in our faith? God says, I don't want that. John Rutter was a composer and 
uh, leader and uh, orchestra leader. He was leading one of his compositions, uh, an orchestra and a choral uh, symphonic choir. And at the end, I mean, all the applause was, was uh, there was a huge roar in the auditorium. And then he silenced them. He says, excuse me, can we do that again? I think we can do better. That's true, so true in my life. I know God looks at me and said, hey, White, you can do better. And I know that. In every, any area of my life, he's looking at you. He's looking at our church. He says, church, you can do better than that. And I trust you're letting this love relationship with God motivate you and move you. I trust that, I trust that you're moving forward because God does not tolerate a tainted sacrifice. Well, what's a tainted sacrifice? We don't bring animals anymore. What's a, a tainted sacrifice would be you reading the Indianapolis Star from cover to cover for a half an hour in the morning and spend five minutes in the Word of God or not at all. And then you come to church and open the Bible as if that's a sacrifice. No, it's not. A tainted sacrifice is when you put your best effort, time, energy, love, thought life into putting into your career to do well. But then when it comes to the body of Christ, you sit on the sidelines. You let everybody else serve. Or you pick the ministry that will cost you the less in time and energy. A tainted sacrifice spends money on your, on your self, on your family for a great summer vacation. Then look at the budgets and oh, we don't have anything left to give. And whatever you do give, it's nickel and diming God. That's a tainted sacrifice. A tainted sacrifice is 4.05 today. There's a kickoff. And somehow in the game, Vinatieri, we hope, hits a field goal. And it's that one field goal that, 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 puts, that, that, that enables the team to win. And we fly off the couch and give high fives. And we come to church and sit on our hands when we consider the cross and the beauty of our God. A tainted sacrifice is when we love our kids so much, man, we would do anything for them. Our hearts beat for them. When we think about the God Almighty, or we're in the scripture, or in music, it's a, it's a flat heartbeat. Nothing really moves us. Those are all tainted sacrifices, and you can define them yourself in your own life. Don't give God what's left. Give him what's right. And what's right is whatever costs us something. Now, we don't make any apologies about sermon. In fact, I love to preach about this. And the reason I love to preach about it is, first of all, it's so freeing. When you get to come to these passages on giving and you're obeying it and you know that money is not controlling you. Now, that doesn't mean the money we keep for ourselves we're doing well at. You know, we're to, we're to be good stewards of everything we have. Um, <laughs> And it also, I promise you, your joy level increases when you invest in kingdom purposes. It just does. God blesses us in ways. Now, if you set out, well, I'm going to give because I want to see how much he's going to give me. Forget it. Don't play God that way. We give out of obedience and our love for him and our desire to see as many people come to Jesus as possible. We give, and when you, when you give the money here online or automatic giving or in the, in the basket when it's passed, you're really giving to God, not us. You're giving to God. We just happen to be the, the church family you're in, and, and it's going to pass through here to be used in good purposes. I love, I love this subject because I've watched people's lives change 
when they learn to give obediently in the scripture. People say to me, well, you know, the New Testament doesn't teach much. It doesn't really teach giving 10%. Well, of course, it shouldn't have to. The Jews gave out of law. They didn't know anything about the cross. We know the cross. We know what's been laid. What happened? Why should we need teaching about 10%? The New Testament says, give as you prospered. That's our principle. I prosper spiritually as well as materially. And so we learn to give out of thanksgiving to God for all he's done for that. I look at my life. I look at, you look at yours. Let's look at our church. Hear God's words. You can do better than that. And we can. Also, I think God is saying, I dare you to love others in my name. Remember Tina Turner? Some of you don't. You weren't born yet. But a lot of us remember early 90s are hit. What's love got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? Who needs a heart when a heart can be broken? Well, Tina, you know, <laughs> love, you know, it, the heart has everything to do with it, right? Heart has everything. And if, if we learn to obey the commandments of God and do what he says, but it's not out of a heart that's been changed and transformed, it's still a tainted sacrifice, you know what it's like raising kids who do what you say, but they know they hate, you, they hate your guts on the inside, right? You're still not pleased even though they did what you said because you know the attitude is not where it should be, right? And God wants a right attitude and spirit of thanksgiving to him. And by the way, Tina, love, love is not a secondhand emotion. It is decision. It's an act of the will, that's why when we give our marriage vows, we say for better, for worse, because we know worse is coming. It might be an hour or a day or a few days to get your act together. But between those two points, you decide to keep loving, right? So we do. Of course. It's a decision. And so we decide. Why should you even be here today? Does anybody here, do you find... Is it an amazing thing that any of you are sitting here today when you look at your life and you think of decisions you've made, wrong turns you've made, and here you get to enjoy the praise of God, salvation of God? I am amazed that I'm standing in front of you preaching because I've had made bad choices in my life and I, I shouldn't be here. When God was speaking to Moses to tell the peace, he said, you know why I chose you? It wasn't because you're numerous. It wasn't because you're powerful. You weren't all that righteous and moral. I just decided to love you. That's why we're here, friends. Because God just decided to love us. And we have to make the decision to love him with all that we have and love the world that he has put us in. And that's why Plainfield Christian Church exists. What's love got to do with it? Has everything to do with it. His love has called us. His love has saved us. His love has transformed us. His love moves us. His love uses us. For God so loved the world. We know what that little word so means, don't we? Our God so loved us by that cross. Now, when he looks at us, he wants to see a church that's so loving the world in his name. Whatever it takes to pay the price, to get people to Jesus because that's what he cares about the most. So about 60 years after Jesus rose from the dead, his best friend John wrote a letter to the church. And it's just five chapters. 
And, uh, you know, we call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter. I think 1 John 3 is really the, great, the better love chapter, perhaps. 51 times in these five chapters, John uses the word love. And he talks about levels of relationships here in 1 John chapter 3. So look at him. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. He's talking about four levels of relationships there. The first one is, I hate you. And that's what Cain displayed to Abel because Abel gave a sacrifice, an offering pleasing to God. Cain didn't, and Cain couldn't stand. It doesn't say Cain gave out of his first fruits. Evidently, he gathered together everything and then see, saw what he was willing to give after he had the assurance that he was going to take care of. I suppose that's one of the reasons. But whatever, God didn't accept it. Cain grew jealous and envious of Abel and killed him. The second attitude we have is, I hate you. Because God says, if you hate somebody, the love of God can't be in you. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're angry towards your brother, you know, you, you're a murderer. You harboring any hate in your heart towards somebody? Is there anybody in your life that you haven't forgiven? You better take care of that. And the flesh often can't do that. You have to let the Holy Spirit of God change your heart so you free people who have hurt you. Third, it's I'll ignore you. Do you see what he says here? If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? In the last year, God has really convicted me about this because is anybody like me and you take the furthest lane away, the left turn lane from the intersection where the homeless person is asking for money? I was really convicted by the Holy Spirit of my ignoring. I'll ignore you. That's what I'm saying. I ignore you. Or eating downtown, you know, and making sure my back is to the window so I won't see anybody in need on the sidewalk and ruin my burger. Turn the channel when the news goes to the refugees or people in boats trying to get to freedom. It's so easy to ignore a world in pain. But the people God has put in your pathway, is there anybody there that by the Holy Spirit quickening your heart, your eyes, somebody there hurting that needs you? God is looking for people and he wants to say to them through you and me, I love you. I love you. We don't love as we ought. I know that because there are hurting people, even our own congregation, that are missed. 
Maybe some of their own doing because they don't come close enough. Maybe, but maybe a lot just because of us. We haven't really learned to love our neighbor as we should because that's, that's what Jesus taught, right? And so when the Jews came to him and said, of all the commandments, what's the most important? We know it so well. We know it so well. Love God, love people. And so there was a lawyer in the crowd who wanted to justify himself, make himself feel okay. He asked, so who is my neighbor? Now, by the question alone, what was he saying? He was saying, God, where can I put boundaries on my love? Tell me, define for me who I must love. Obviously, he was missing the love of God. So Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Guy gets mugged, left for dead. Three religious people go by, uh, don't get involved. The dirty, rotten scoundrel of a Samaritan walks by, gets involved, loves him to health and life. And then the lawyer has to deal with the main question, which is not who is my neighbor, but what kind of neighbor am I? And that's the question resounded through the ages, these 2,000 years. What kind of neighbor will my church be to a world in need? What kind of neighbor are we being? A plainful Christian is not yet the neighbor it needs to be. We do some good things. I'm thankful for that. For instance, this year, we spent $76,000 on those struggling through financial and relationship crisis. We spent $280,000 this year on electricity and HVAC needs so we can worship and, and serve and learn and comfort. And that's not very exciting to think your money goes to pay the light bill, but you want us not to pay our electric bill? Boy, do we get the whiners then. Where's the air conditioning? Why is it so hot in here? You know. <laughs> By the way, ever, ever have to play host to a couch surfer? You know what a couch surfer is? That's the person, the guy who calls you up and says, hey man, I need a place to crash. Yeah, come on over. And so they sleep on your couch for a night, and then two, and three, and 30, and 45. And they're eating your food and using your water, and they don't offer to do anything until you're burned out, and then they go to another place to hang out. There are church people like that. They, they, are, they are seat surfers. And they enjoy the benefit of a nice building to come to, to worship and be around people, and they don't really contribute and there are church surfers or seat surfers living off the fat of the land. And I don't say that because I, I don't know. Luke said last week, and we, we assure you, we don't know who gives what here. That, we don't know who doesn't give. That's not our business. But it has to be true. Because if everybody were obeying the Lord, man, we'd be hunting down people to support throughout the world. We'd be, we'd be starting all kinds of ministries in this area to reach people. We spend $73,000 a year just for insurance policies and background checks and security so we can feel secure. And we know our kids are secure in this building. We spent $90,000 this year on Vacation Bible School and for MOVE Conference for our, our youth and for Camp Allendale and for other retreats, investing in our children and students. There's the materially poor. And then we have other local ministries around us that we give as well to sheltering wings and, and life life whatever, and I know it really well, don't I? And uh, uh, all kinds of needs come up. And then because God commands us to go to the world, we don't have an option. People will say, well, why, do, why are we sending all this money to all the other countries of the world when we have needs here? Because God commanded us to. 
Jesus said, go all the people groups in the world and make disciples. We don't get to choose whether we want to be here reaching people or there. We have to go both places. And so this year, we gave over $700,000 to reach people in Mexico and Haiti and New Zealand and Kosovo and Ukraine and Eastern European nations and Ghana and, and Papua New Guinea and other places. Go to mypcc.info, scroll down to serve, and then hit the serve card, scroll down to missions to be aware of those where your, where your money is going. Friends, the bottom line is there is no room for us defending ourselves before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords why we are not giving and why we're not growing in giving. We all can do better, all of us. I hope that you'll use this card we put in your bulletin this morning. You notice you're not signing a name. It just, it just helps us to scratch off somewhere. Maybe you've never given before and you're going to start. Or maybe you give pocket change compared to what your salary looks like and you're going to start giving 10%. Or you give 10% and, uh, and, and you give more than 10%. Praise God. Then increase it. Increase it by 1% or 2% or more, whatever. My principle is if, if what we're giving isn't changing our lifestyle, then we're not giving enough. Everybody's lifestyle should be affected to some degree. There's things we'd like to do, but can't. Like to drive, can't. Like to live, can't. Uh, Like to spend on, can't. Because we're investing in the kingdom of God. This is how we know what love is, John says. Jesus Christ laid down his life. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. There is no reason for us to live cluelessly. So the woman called her friend and said, uh, hey, how you doing? And she said, uh, terrible. Two kids have flu. They're in the bed. I feel like I'm getting it. I feel lousy. The house is a wreck. I didn't even get time to go to the grocery. And uh, the friend there said, don't worry about it. I've got time. I'll go get some food for you. I'll make some hot soup. I'll bring it over. You go to bed. I'll clean the house. Don't worry about a thing. And then she asked, so when's John going to be back? And the lady said, John, there's no John here. I'm a single mom. And the caller said, oh, I must have called the wrong number. Long pause. The sick woman said, so are you still coming over? (laughs) You know how broken our world is, right? We know how concerned we are for our, our kids And our grandkids, we wonder, are they going to make it? Are they going to love Jesus when they're adults? What kind of world are they going to have? We've watched the news. We we read the papers. We are bombarded. There's so much evil in the world. Now, the world doesn't know it. But out of their brokenness and their woundedness, while they're trying to fix themselves, they're ultimately saying, are you coming? And God has established his church to reach our ministry area and to reach the peoples of the world in his name and for his glory. It's the greatest work in the world. God has made it clear. Jesus has modeled it. And the Spirit-inspired Word has commanded it. There is no reason to live cluelessly before Him. Our God has called us. 
the only thing I can think it's interrupting you and disobedience is that you haven't laid down your life to Jesus. You're still claiming life for your own. And that's why I implore you and I urge you to be baptized into Jesus Christ and be resurrected to a brand new life. The gospel is Jesus Christ died for sinners, us, that we might be resurrected to a new life. So do that, and you'll never regret that great decision in your life. Let's be obedient and love him well and love our neighbors here and around the world to the nth degree that he'll be lifted up. Let's lift him up right now in worship.